Okay, either now or, but we will be turning to Genesis chapter 1, so you may want to pull there, you know, out and mark it, Genesis chapter 1. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonderful gift of the body. Not only the glory of your Son through it in the earth, but the gift that it is to us who believe. But in the midst of it, Father, what unites us is our joy in your word, in the truth, in your self-revelation, in your works all culminating in the person and in the work of your Son for us sinners unto the praise of your glory. And so, Father, I pray that over this next 50 minutes, these words, this sermon, this text be used for that end to the glory of your holiness in goodness. Amen. Okay, this is week two in the series God's Purpose in Redemptive History. Last week was the introduction. If you haven't heard it, please do. Uh, just This is a series. Each part builds upon the other part. Last week sets up how I'm going about it, why we're going about it. So this morning, we're ready to start our search for the purpose of God in creation. The purpose singular of God. We are on a journey of searching for the one unifying theme that ties the myriad of pieces throughout redemptive history together unto that one end. And so, before we turn to Genesis chapter 1-1, which we will in a few minutes, I want to address a foundational question. How shall we approach this Bible as we open it up to look for the whole counsel of God, for the, the purpose of God, for the end for which God created the world? And so, with that, there are, there are three basic things I want us to consider as we open up the Bible, as you open up your Bible. And that is, first, presuppositions. Second, consider the chapter and verse vacation, to ignore it. And third, therefore, we're looking at a text in its context as we move throughout to try to understand the meaning that is there. So first, presuppositions. In other words, those things that we suppose beforehand. Before I open up Genesis 1-1, I already got a bunch of stuff in my head as a human being that I assume to be true. And that can really, really cause terrible interpretation. So the first thing is to recognize our own presuppositions and do our best 
do our best to try to, to lay them aside and let them be challenged if they need be. See, what I mean is every one of us, we come to the Bible with some kind of worldview. We come to it with an idea of God, a theology. We come to it with philosophies of life, things we assume, we assume to be true about the world, about God, about humanity, about the afterlife, or is there one? And those assumptions may be true. And ultimately, you're going to reaffirm. Some of them may not at all be true. They may be wrong. So we need to do our best to set them aside. For, for most of us Christians, we don't come to the Bible as a blank slate. Okay, just fill it up. We already have foundational beliefs. Like whatever goes up must come down. It's worked so far in my life as I'm on earth. Okay? And you got beliefs like that. Or like, and this is the vast majority of us who come to faith in Jesus Christ. I got a foundational belief that the very core and the center of all existence and meaning is mankind. The hub around which the entire Bible flows. And if you're right, it's great. If you're wrong, you may be looking through something that is distorting things you're seeing. And so the result is that a clear central teachings in the Bible, the numbers of them, it's in my experience, I would look at them, not knowing my presuppositions or even thinking about them, and say to myself as I would read which seemed to me very clear passages to me now, and they seemed clear on the surface then, but I would really say to myself, I know it can't mean that. can't mean what it seems to clearly say. We all know that, so it's got to mean something else. And then if you go along long enough, you'll get people to write books and preach sermons and to help you how to cause it to say something other than it says. So the first point is we have to try our hardest to set aside our previous ideas. They may be right. Not the point. We want to go to the text and say, what is it saying? To read the Bible again and again afresh. Allow it to change your understanding of reality. Or else confirm your understanding of reality. Set aside presuppositions. Secondly, ignore chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 28. Ignore verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. They're not inspired by God. Chapters are added over a thousand years after Christ. Those numbers in there so that we can turn more easily and find it. Verses over 1,500 years in a New Testament with a guy on a horseback putting them in there, rushing his way to the printing press because he was on a deadline. Okay, so in other words, never let those numbers, the chapters and the verses, 
determine, as you're reading, units of thought. It's not what they're there for. And if you did, they can really mess you up and not follow the author's flow. And so, therefore, the third thing in, we have writing before us. Our goal is to search for the human author's intended meaning. And so, in other words, as we do that, there are two goals that every believer ought to have. The first is the ultimate goal. In other words, why do I go to the Bible? Why do I want to read the Bible? Because of this. We need our hearts changed. We need our affections changed. We need our wills to be changed. That's the ultimate goal of reading the Bible. As God says through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 62 too, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So there is a heart issue as we approach God's holy word. Or as the way the Lord Jesus Himself said it, I speak these things to you. And here's His goal. Not merely so that you can understand my thinking. But I speak them to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. That's the goal of reading this book, of wanting to understand this book. And that leads to the second goal, which is the immediate goal. In other words, in order to get to the ultimate goal, there's something that has to be going on logically prior to it. And that goal has to do with our intellect. Why? Simple. Because the truth if you really have that as an ultimate goal, the truth that we want to affect our wills and our hearts and our affections has come to us in writing. Marks on a page, in language that is outside of us. That's how we get to the ultimate goal, by hearing it. It's a book. It's really 66 distinct writings in this book called the Bible. And books must be read or listened to if someone else reads them. And to read them well and to listen to them well is by its definition an intellectual activity. So the Bible is not a book that's dropped out of heaven with some kind of divine language that God speaks up there with angels or something. It's a very human book on one sense and a very divine book on another. In that when we say it's the Word of God, we mean throughout history in the writing of this at different times, different kinds of writing from poetry to narrative to epistle or 
teaching, to law. We mean God was sovereignly superintending the writing of it through men in their particular times, with their particular known languages, with those particular language conventions that they used in order to communicate meaning. And therefore, God's meaning in Scripture is gotten at only through those particular language conventions of the human authors. Paying attention to the subject and the verb and the connectors, the inferences from what came previously, etc. Which is to say basically this, read well. Be good at it. Get better at it. Pay attention to what the author is doing in the context to grasp what the human author is doing in the writing throughout the Bible. And you get that? That is what it is to get God's Word. His meaning to us. So in short, good biblical interpretation is seeing reality through the eyes of Moses. David, or the editors of Samuel and Kings, or Jeremiah, or the physician Luke, Paul, Peter in their letters. That's foundational how we'll approach it. Now, I didn't mention the Holy Spirit anywhere yet. So, does the Holy Spirit have anything to do with our Bible interpretation? Well, He does not, this is not the work of the Holy Spirit here, is He is not there and in you as you read your Bible in order to tell you how the subject relates to the verb. It's what you're supposed to be learning from kindergarten on. And you do it all the time. That's why you understood what I just said. It just came to you because you're engulfed in this language I'm speaking. So you pay attention when it's written very carefully what is being said. He's not there to tell you how this sentence relates to the sentence that comes after or this unit of thought to the other. You read carefully and slowly. It's on the page. So what's the work of the Holy Spirit? It's that we constantly and desperately need Him in interpretation to cause our hearts to be humbled. To soften my heart so that I'm willing to read what's on the page carefully and thus accept it. Because to the extent that we, and I mean even we who have been born again, are not in that state, we will tend to butcher the text and maybe even write books on how to interpret a text that so offends our sinful nature and say it's okay now. 
to commit homosexual acts. And it's really not sin because you're doing it monogamously in the context of marriage or myriads of other things. We need the work of the Spirit so that we would welcome what is already on the pages of Scripture long before any of us were ever born. So that we will therefore say, that's what it says. Change me, O Lord. It's, it's to cry out with the psalmist, open my eyes that I may see not tell me. I, the guy knows how to read Hebrew, but that I may see wonderful things in your word. That I may see what your word says, that it actually is wonderful to me. And that's impossible without the work of the Spirit. So, that's it. That's foundational for now the next 29, 30 weeks. That's our process as we open up now the book of redemptive history. So, if you would, turn to the very beginning of your Bibles, to Genesis 1. I'm going to be reading from Genesis 1-1 to chapter 2, verse 3. And I'm going to read very selectively. I'm going to leave some parts out just because of time's sake. But we're going to feel and get the whole flow. Now, why am I going to chapter 2, verse 3? Well, because where chapter 2 is put is horrible. The writer's clearly working on a sequence of days. And he ends chapter 1 with the sixth day, and the seventh day begins chapter 2. Okay. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let, the, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the land, the dry land, appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, 
And there was mourning the fourth day. And God said, Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Blessed is the reading of God's holy Word to us. The foundation of all reality is this sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the ground upon which all redemptive history is built. And by created, the text means God brought into existence out of nothing everything that is not God. There's one God who 
eternally exists, who has self-existence or being in His nature. And therefore, there is only one ultimate origin of all of creation. And that's that God. As Paul says in Romans 11, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. And since later in the linear story of redemptive history, we learn something about this one God, this one being, that He eternally exists in three persons. Therefore, we learn this about creation from Colossians 1. Christ, the God-man, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Him. And so, God, through the Son, created out of nothing everything that is not God. The essence of irrationality is to say something like this. That something came from nothing. Just irrational. Even though there are some scientists who say things like that, or that life comes from non-life, when they say that, it is not a scientific statement. It is a belief statement that is irrational. All that is created, including the physical, the material universe, comes from one who is not created and is not material or physical. But he is not nothing. He is very much something. As Paul declares in Romans 4, God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The foundational sentence of all redemptive history is God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. And so now, as we look here in the entire first chapter of Genesis 1 into verse 3 of chapter 2, okay, ask the question, why is it put this way? 
Is there purpose? Is the author up to something? The answer is, of course. Yes. And I want you to notice that throughout this passage, you keep hearing this. It was good. It was repeated on every day except for day two. It was good. It was good. Which leads to the climax of the end of day six. It was tov meod. Very good. After creating humanity. And so, when you look at day one and day two and three and four and five and half of day six, you ask your, what do you mean it was good? Good for what? And I think the flow is clear. So that he could say, very good. It's rest time. I've done it. It's completed. In other words, the first five and a half days prepare the earth for human beings. And each of those days in order contribute to the ultimate very good of the creation of man. And you see the climax in verses 26 to 31. That's why it's there. God created humanity in His own image. It was very good. He created them, male and female, in His image. And it was very good. Everything of God, this is how I read the text, see what you think, is communicating here that in creation, everything in God's heart was wholeheartedly in the creation of mankind. And everything else leading up to it is there for the sake of that pinnacle of His creation of humanity in His image. And then God commands in this text for man to have rule, dominion, control over all the creation. Here's the text. And God creates humanity in His own image. They're not infinite. They're not God. They're finite and they are the creature. But whatever God is, they image that fort very much as a creature. Like God. And He says, now you go rule, have dominion, subdue all that I created under you. 
Okay. Doesn't that have to mean that as they do, in all that they're doing, they are reflecting His image? They're somehow subduing, ruling in a way that, that rings to the Creator, the one in whom they are made in the image of through creation. So God says then, My image, multiply, fill the earth with My image, with Me, God, who I am reflected through you as the creature. And therefore, the basic meaning of Genesis 1-1 to chapter 2, verse 3, is that God created the universe in order to display outwardly, outside of God, meaning into the created universe He made. He did it for a purpose. To display outwardly His image, or say it differently, His glory, say that differently, same thing, His goodness, His beauty, His holiness, His image. That it may be seen in creation, praised, adored, responded to. The image of God, the reflection of God extended through the creature, humanity, who's made in His image. Or to just say it simply, God created everything that is not God for the extension of His glory. That's the first foundational step in God's purpose in redemptive history. That's as far as we're going to go this morning in text, but I want us to stand this morning. Not stand up. Please don't stand. But stand before this text and feel the impact of it. If everything that is not God came into being at the Word of God, and God said, and God said, then it follows that every second of our existence is owing to the will of God. And therefore, no creature has the principle of ongoing existence in and of itself or himself or herself. We, as creatures, and every human being is made in the image of God, but we do not have pure being. Only God is 
pure being. We are always becoming derivative. The creature dependent. We have no existence now or in the future apart from God's perpetual preservation. As the Hebrew writer declared in verse 3 of chapter 1, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So if God ever willed for your soul to cease to exist, you would cease to be. <clears throat> now over the next few sermons, we're going to turn to the massive question about what we just have seen. In other words, the question of why? Okay, you understand, but what does that mean? What is it about God before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that would cause creation? We're going to go there in the weeks to come. But for the rest of this morning, I just want to leave you with three implications of this creation story. Implications for how we think, for how we feel, for how we will, for how we choose. Implications for our world view. The first is this. If God is the creator of everything, it is not God, then He owns everything. And He owns all persons. Absolutely. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's. Belongs to Him. And the fullness of it, it's His. The world and those persons who dwell therein. We may think, and this appropriately so, on a horizontal level down here with one another as human beings, that we have ownership of things in relationship to the other people, which we do. That's my tricycle. It's my car. You have a right to steal that from me. I own that. Absolutely true, absolutely biblical. It actually made it into the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal, which by definition implies one human being owns something you do not. Very true. But in relationship to God, we own ultimately 
nothing. And he has every right to do with all of our stuff just as he pleases. He's absolute owner. See, that's why it would be totally wrong to think that only 10% of income belongs to God. And the other 90, God, you have zero to do with my life. That whole principle is so that that ongoing reality of the creature recognizes the earth is yours. Everything I have is yours. That I don't have a stroke right now and I can function is because of you. It's that ongoing worship and connection with Him. All of our stuff and things and money and giftings and time, all of it, belongs to the Lord. It's absolutely His. The doctrine of creation implies that we should, for everything, all the 90%, how shall I live? What should I do? Give me wisdom, O Lord. And you look to His Word and you get wisdom. So that's the first, well, no, that's first part A. He owns everything. Everything we own, He owns. We are ultimately stewards of the Master, the Creator. But part B is not only does He own our possessions, He owns us. Absolutely. And I don't mean us Christians, us human beings, everyone, absolutely. We are the clay, and He is the potter, and therefore, He may do with us whatever He pleases to do. Whatever He so wills to do. As Paul says in Romans 9, quoting Isaiah 29, Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? The answer is yes. He has absolute right over the clay. This is foundational to the biblical worldview. Foundational to redemptive history. This is a good moment. We sinners, hopefully being saved, to take our spiritual temperature. Simply this. When we hear what I have just said over the last three minutes, is it sweet to you? Thank God I don't own myself. Is that sweet to you? You submit to God's ownership. Okay. To extent that is, that is the beautiful gift and grace of God working in your life. That is the maturity of your growth in Christ that you can have a response like that.
But if what I have said here is offensive to you, and you resent the thought of God having an absolute right to do with you and everything you have as He absolutely pleases, then that's a mark of our sin nature. As Paul would call it, a mark of our flesh which needs to be repented of. The essence of our flesh Yes, for the world, but yes, for genuine believers who battle with the flesh. At its core, it is this self-assertion. It is this will to be autonomous. Which means, I stand on an island, disconnected from the Creator which I hope you have inferred from what has been said so far in this creation story, that there is no such thing as ultimate human autonomy. But our flesh. Well, we'll see it. We'll see it. It was the issue in the garden. I want to be autonomous. It is the desire. Our flesh is constantly desiring to have our own rights over against our Creator. I will determine what I will do and how I will do it. And I will get the last laugh. And the story's got a beginning and an end. And we know no creature will ever, ever get the last laugh. But those who think autonomy, I'm my own God, I'll be like God, I'm going to follow Eve, I love it. At least I spurned him, will realize. For from him and through him and back to him are all things. And it will be the eternal frustration of the damned. First implication, God owns everything and every person. The second implication of creation is that everything that exists has a purpose. It has a goal. It has a reason for being. And ultimately, God's purpose is never in jeopardy. Isaiah 46.10 puts it this way. I am God, and there is none like me. I am the one who declares the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And the ultimate purpose of God in creation was and is to display His glory. Numbers 
Chapter 14, verse 21 says, God's intention is to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. And Isaiah 43, 7, God declares, Everyone who is called by My name, whom I created for My glory. And as we have seen in this church in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 1, three times in one long sentence, Paul says, here's the ultimate goal for which God saves sinners and adopts them unto Himself. Three times. For the praise of His glory. And no wonder, therefore, Paul tells believers in 1 Corinthians 10, so whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He will accomplish His purpose. From beginning to end. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there is a glorious consummation of creation and fall and redemption through God the Son and the future bodily resurrection unto immortality for all who are His coming. And the final implication is this. If we are creatures, we are totally, whether we recognize it or not, totally and utterly dependent on our Creator for everything. We are in reality, we have analogies, we are weaker than the weakest infant baby apart from Him in His sustaining. Because apart from Him, we don't exist. He's here right now. There is no creation of the eternal God without God ever present. There is no other than God So when He creates, there is no disconnect from God. It's the horror of hell. God is ever-present in pure justice. Every breath we take Every good intention that we fulfill in our life is a gift from our merciful Creator. If you like anything you've heard so far this morning, it is a gift of God's grace from the Creator who owes you nothing. 
but freely gives. And so the lesson is clear. You can't glorify God as the all-sufficient creator and sustainer unless you turn and you become like little children who gladly depend upon their Father for everything. That's impossible without a Savior. We haven't even gotten to the fall yet. But that's where it's going to be going. That is impossible to do in the state we are in without being personally redeemed. Every one of us in this room finds ourselves right now in the midst of God's story, in the midst of redemptive history. And as it unfolds in the weeks to come through this series, we will see that Adam, our dad, our father, our representative, has plunged us all into darkness and sin and judgment. But God acts to save. He acts throughout this history to redeem and to restore sinners for His glory through Jesus Christ. And one day all the brokenness, all the emotional, all the mental, all the physical, all the relational brokenness will be restored. And all evil will be gone. And everything will be summed up in God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so as I close... This morning, this sermon. Listen. Listen to the Creator speak in His incarnation. While He was mortal, going to the cross in front of Him still, Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke to control your life here. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Because my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that we have heard that call. We have heard it as the honey to our taste buds. Oh, may we seek daily as Your people 
to enter that rest, to enter that trust, to be more and more cognizant of our utter dependence upon you, and thus to trust every word that you have given to us in this book, every promise that is for today, every promise that is for the future, every command, oh, that we would obey and sit and listen and learn from you. You have done it. And we ask you to continue to do it in our lives to the glory of your holy name. Amen.